Chemical Watch podcast. Unlock the full value of your compliance and product stewardship with world-leading insight and intelligence from Chemical Watch. To find out more or request a demo, visit chemicalwatch.com. Chemical Watch. Intelligence to transform product safety. Hello, this is Kate Lowe, Global Managing Editor of Chemical Watch, welcoming you to this week's news podcast hosted by members of the Chemical Watch team. For today's episode, I am joined from Washington, D.C. by our North America reporter, John Kelvey, and North America managing editor, Terry Highland. From London, by our Europe correspondent, Clelia Oziel. And finally, from Brussels, by our reporter, Catherine Carlson. There are three areas that we're going to be focusing on today. Firstly, we'll be turning to California, where a bill has been passed restricting more than a dozen substances from cosmetic products and banning the manufacture or sale of cosmetics containing those substances from January 2025. Second, we move to the UK, where industry learned last week that it will have more time, up to six years in some cases, to complete registration dossiers under the UK's independent REACH framework, which comes into being on the 1st of January 2021. And staying with the transition to UK REACH, we'll also be examining the government's decision to disband the Expert Trade Advisory Group for the chemical sector, a move which NGOs fear could lead to compromises on environmental protection and health as the country negotiates post-Brexit trade deals involving chemicals. Finally, we return to the US, where on Friday, the Environmental Protection Agency published the final scope documents for risk evaluation of 20 high-priority substances under the Toxic Substances Control Act. Also on Friday, the final list was released of companies that will be responsible for paying a share of the $1.35 million fee that comes with each risk evaluation. So it was a big day for chemicals management. So let's begin with California and the bill which has been passed restricting more than a dozen substances from cosmetic products and banning the manufacture or sale of cosmetics containing those substances from January 2025. The legislation passed out of the California State Senate on 28th of August. That was followed two days later by a concurring vote in the State Assembly, which agreed to some small changes from the Senate. It is now with the Governor of California, Gavin Newsom, who has until 30th of September to sign or veto the bill. Now, John, this is, of course, not the first time a bill of this kind, which uh, which bans the manufacture and sale of restricted products, has been put forward. But if the legislation is signed off by Governor Newsom, it will be the first time such a bill has succeeded, not just in California, but anywhere in the U.S. So what has been the key to this bill actually getting this far? Hi, Kate. Well, when you look at the history of this bill, one thing that stands out is how broad its support has been since almost the beginning. 
in the California legislature, it's won votes from both Republicans and Democrats in nearly unanimous votes. I believe there was just one no cast during one of the floor votes on the bill in the California Assembly, which is the, the state's equivalent of a House of Representatives. And then outside the legislature, the bills had the support of NGOs like Breast Cancer Prevention Partners, which point out that many of the banned chemicals have links to breast cancer and so see it as a straight up win for public health. But it's also had the support of trade groups, such as the Personal Care Products Council, which threw its weight behind the bill back in May. They issued a statement noting that it was the first time they were joining NGOs, such as the Environmental Working Group, to support legislation like this. Uh, but that they see it as a means of modernizing regulations and bringing California regulations in harmony with the rest of the world. Uh, the 12 groups of substances banned in this bill are already banned in the EU, for example. Okay, thanks, John. So can you just tell us a little more about the details of the legislation, you know, the substances that will be restricted you know, and the requirements on business? Sure. So assuming Governor Newsom signs the bill, he mentioned he has until September 30th to make that decision, uh, there will be these 12 groups of substances that will be banned from cosmetics made or sold in California, including mercury, methylene glycol, phthalates, and long-chain per- and polyfluoral alkyl substances, or PFAS. The ban would go into effect January 1st, 2025, so manufacturers have some time to come into compliance, and the bill would also allow for unavoidable trace amounts of the banned substances due to impurities in ingredients or the manufacturing process or migration from packaging into the, into the product. Okay, thanks, John. So the director of one of the NGOs supporting the legislation, uh, Janet Noodleman of the Breast Cancer Prevention Partners Campaign for Safe Cosmetics, uh, she said it could have a global impact. Why, why does she think that? Well, there's a reason why breast cancer prevention partners were so supportive of this legislation in California. And that's because as California goes, typically so does the rest of the U.S. and global markets. California is currently the fifth largest economy in the world just behind Germany. So the idea here is that manufacturers won't just reformulate their products for California, but will change their entire product line. Okay, thanks very much, John. So now let's turn our attention to Europe and specifically the UK, where UK REACH is due to come into being on the 1st of January 2021, the day after the Brexit transition period ends. Now, one of the really big concerns for the chemicals industry wanting to continue to place substances on the UK market from next year is that it won't have enough time to replicate data held by the European Chemicals Agency under EU REACH to say nothing of the cost. Hence, the industry has been anxious for a way to be found to either avoid the need for du duplicate data or to delay the need and with it the costs. Now, under current plans, EU-held registrations will be grandfathered into UK REACH with basic information required from registrants by the 30th of April next year, and businesses would then have two years to submit full data. However, in updated guidance that was released last week, the government has made some changes to these arrangements and does appear to have responded to at least some of the industry's concerns. So, Clelia, um, can I ask you, first of all, uh, to talk us through you know, what exactly has changed under the new guidance released last week? 
Hi, Kate. Um, so the government has been in discussions with the industry for many months now to find ways to alleviate the data and cost burden that an independent reach regime would impose on them. Essentially, these businesses would have to negotiate new contracts and repurchase the data from EU multinational businesses that own it, unless, of course, they themselves own it, as in the case of some major UK companies. Now, this process can take a long time. Uh, in EU reach, it took more than 10 years, uh, and the data is, of course, very expensive. Some chemical companies have spent millions of pounds to generate this data or have access to it. So the ideal outcome for UK businesses in this Brexit process has always been alignment with EU reach and free access to data. But the UK government has ruled alignment out. Um, however, last week's guidance shows that the government at least recognizes these concerns and wants to help the industry by pushing back the deadlines by which full data packages must be submitted. In some cases, nothing much changes. Uh, for example, for high tonnage chemicals, those that are more than uh, a thousand tons a year or with particularly hazardous properties such as carcinogenic substances and substances that are on the candidate list, the data still has to be submitted within two years. Uh, but the clock starts ticking from the end of October, which gives these companies a few more months. Um, for other chemicals, there is a lot more leeway. Uh, four years in the case of chemicals traded at uh, 100 tons or more, and six years for those traded at one ton or more. Uh, so it is a big relief, particularly for smaller businesses. Uh, there's also some help for downstream users uh, who under UK reach become importers and will have to register chemicals for the first time. Uh, there have been real concerns about them uh, and the government has extended the deadline by which they need to submit an initial uh, notification to 10 months from six. This is in addition to the new timescales for data submission. Okay, thanks very much, Clelia. So how has industry responded to the amendments that have been made? Yes, so I've talked to several industry representatives and the sense I got is that this is a step in the right direction. Two years was incredibly short to put that data together, especially for smaller companies. And at least now they'll be able to spread the costs and resources over a longer period of time. But concerns remain. Uh, at the end of the day, they still have to repurchase that data somehow and pay for it. And this is the real difficulty. Another concern is that companies may be tempted to trade right up to their tonnage deadline and at that point decide not to proceed with registration because it doesn't make commercial sense to them. This would result in some key chemicals being removed from the UK market. So the measure announced by the government doesn't really solve the problem, it just delays it. Um, there's also the uncertainty of whether the data required by the UK authority will be exactly the same as that submitted to ECHA. Uh, there's a possibility that if the UK regime diverges from EU reach in the future, businesses would have to come up with different sets of data, and this would be a major problem. The government said it will publish more information in September about the kind of data it will require, so watch the space. Okay, thanks, Clelia. So uh, the chemicals industry then is still pinning its hopes on the UK being granted access to the ECHA database, uh, but this has so far proved elusive. So is there any sign of progress here? 
Well, the short answer is no. Um, the negotiations over chemicals data are very much part of the overall trade negotiations that are taking place between the UK and the EU. And it is a case of nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. Uh, so I'm afraid we're going to have to wait for fishing rights and state aid issues. These are the key sticking points to, to be resolved first before we hear about chemicals. Unfortunately, little progress has been made on these trade talks. And this morning we had the news that the UK is threatening to tear up part of the EU withdrawal agreements if a deal is not agreed by mid-October. This raises the temperature up quite significantly. Um, that said, the government wants to agree a chemicals annex as part of a trade deal that would include a, a, a data sharing mechanism with the EU. Um, the EU has indicated that it will not allow access to data unless the UK aligns its chemicals legislation, and the UK has ruled that out. Um, so it remains to be seen if these opposite positions can somehow be reconciled. The industry and NGOs still very much hope and expect that there will be some kind of agreement on data, but how high reach ranks among the UK government's bargaining chips remains to be seen. Okay, thanks very much, Clelia. Now, staying with the UK and the transition to UK reach, uh, we reported last week on the disbanding of the Expert Trade Advisory Group for the chemical sector by the UK's Department of International Trade. The advisory group, which gave NGOs, unions and academics a platform to weigh in on trade policy, was dissolved as part of a larger shakeup in trade advisory bodies. So Catherine, can you tell us why NGOs are so concerned about the shakeup? There'll, there'll be a new advisory body, won't there? Hi, Kate. Well, the main complaint of environmental and consumer NGOs is that they are being shut out of trade talks and for these discussions in the UK. They're worried about this because the new advisory body, which has been renamed the Trade Advisory Group, or TAG, only has business members. So familiar names like the CBA, the Chemical Business Association, CIA, the Chemicals Industries Association, and companies like Tata Chemicals Europe will all sit on the new advisory body, while NGOs, unions, and academics who sat on the old ETAG aren't given a seat at the table. At the moment, with post-Brexit trade talks and the development of the UK reach system underway, the NGOs are concerned that the business perspective will be prioritised in trade discussions, which they argue could result in a lowering of environmental and consumer standards in the long run. For instance, the NGO Chemtrust, which sat on the old ETAG, previously said that a trade deal with the US would result in the UK having to accept US products containing chemicals banned or restricted in the EU. Okay, thanks, Catherine. So what has been the response of officials and the chemical industry bodies that will be sitting on the new advisory group to the concerns raised by NGOs? Well, government officials have said that the ETAG is only being expanded to minimise duplication in the trade governance framework. They also say that NGOs and other groups will still be consulted, just in other formats like roundtables and quarterly stakeholder briefings. As for the rest of the European chemicals industry, Cervic told Chemical Watch that the reform is a UK matter and that they can't speculate on the consequences. They did make a show of unity with the UK, though, saying that the EU and UK chemical industries remain fully aligned 
and that they're both seeking to secure frictionless trade in chemicals and a high degree of regulatory alignment. But as for the impact of this decision on that much sought after regulatory alignment, a lot will remain to be seen in the months to come. Okay, thanks. Thanks again, Catherine. So for our final discussion, let's turn once again to the US, where on Friday, the US EPA published the finalized scope documents for the TOSCA risk evaluations of 20 high priority substances, as well as the final list of companies that will be responsible for paying a share of the $1.35 million fee that comes with each risk evaluation. Terry, tell us more. Hey, Kate. Yeah, that's right. So two big developments for chemical reviews here in the U.S. The final scope documents that you had mentioned, they set out the types of applications or the conditions of use that the EPA plans to review for each of those 20 substances, as well as the hazards, exposures, potentially vulnerable populations, uh, those sorts of things that it will look at in its risk evaluations. Now for the fees, they were intended to help the EPA defray the cost of doing all of these chemical reviews. But we'll get back to those fees in in a little bit. For now, we'll stay focused on the final scope documents. And they're important for a couple big reasons. First, it's these conditions of use that the EPA is evaluating that could become subject to regulatory action down the road if EPA, during its evaluations, finds that any of those uses present an unreasonable risk to human health or the environment. So take formaldehyde, for example. It's one of those 20 substances undergoing review. It's widely used in industry and in uh, commercial and consumer applications. So the EPA in its final scope document for formaldehyde said it will look at uh, its uses in 35 different categories or 64 subcategories. So that means that any of those uses, if EPA finds they present an unreasonable risk to human health or the environment, could see regulations to restrict or even ban those applications. Now, those restrictions, if they are imposed, that would still be a ways down the road as we're still early in the evaluations process for these 20 substances. But these final scope documents do have an immediate effect, and that's on what states can do, or rather what they can't do. And that is called, uh, or that is part of Tosca's pause preemption. So the idea with that is that states are preempted from taking action to restrict those chemical uses during the EPA's review process. Or put another way, states must pause any effort to restrict those chemical uses while the EPA is evaluating them. Unless of course the state gets a waiver. So these final scope documents show us both what chemical applications could be subject to federal regulation, but also which ones could be protected from state level requirements. Okay, thanks very much, Terry. Was there anything that really stood out in these scope documents and what the EPA plans to consider? Yes, so a few things. First, it's worth noting that these final scopes they followed on the draft versions that the EPA released in April. And there was a comment period for the public and other stakeholders to comment on those drafts. And in response to these comments, the EPA made changes to 17 of those 20 final scope documents. Uh, Another interesting development was 
in the notice when EPA announced the final scopes, the EPA said it would no longer exclude legacy uses or related disposal from the conditions of use that it's reviewing if those legacy uses are, quote, intended, known, or reasonably foreseen, end quote. So legacy uses are, are those where the substance is no longer manufactured for a particular use, but it's still present in products that were made earlier. Think of asbestos and its continued presence in insulation and fireproofing in many older buildings. Well, the EPA did not include those legacy issues when it started its evaluations of the first 10 chemicals that it set out for review under the amended TOSCA. All 10 of these reviews are due to be completed by the end of this year. One of those first 10, of course, is asbestos. EPA's original decision not to include legacy uses in its reviews for those first 10 substances prompted a legal challenge from several advocacy groups. And late last year, those groups won. The US Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit said, EPA, you have to address legacy uses and their associated disposal uh, when you're doing these risk evaluations. So this time around, for the early stages of these 20 reviews, you have EPA coming out directly and saying, hey, these legacy issues won't be ignored if they apply. Now, that still isn't likely enough to stave off legal challenges once these reviews are completed in a few years. In fact, the first of the original 10 risk evaluations that was completed back in June, it has already drawn a pair of lawsuits from both NGOs and nearly a dozen state attorneys general. So really, whatever the EPA does, it's likely the courts will have a say at some point. Thanks very much, Terry. Now, what about the Tosca fees? Um, can you talk a little about those and whether the final list uh, included any surprises? Yes, the fees. Well, this is, as you had said, the list of companies that manufacture or import any of these 20 substances now going undergoing review. If your company is listed for any substance, you'll have to share in the $1.35 million fee that comes with that re with the review. And currently you have 120 days to pay, which is until the 2nd of January, 2021. Now this final list was actually cut back dramatically from the number of companies EPA initially said could potentially be on the hook for the fees back in January. The final list includes about 75% fewer companies, though a few substances did actually see a number of the companies increase. Along with this list of fee payers, the EPA also released a list of companies that certified they had stopped making any of these 20 substances. And the overall drop in the number of fee payers was not really unexpected. The EPA in March had said that it would not require companies to identify themselves, and thus they would be off the hook for the fees, if all they did was either one of three things. They only imported articles that contained any one of these 20 substances, or if they only produce the substances as an impurity or a byproduct. And that cut out a lot of these companies. Formaldehyde, again, as an example, had more than 500 companies initially listed as potential payers. On the final list, that number is now less than 60. But on the flip side, that might not be good news if your company is still on that list of fee payers. 
the more companies listed for a substance, well, that means that the fee would be split more ways. But if you're one of just a handful of companies or just one company listed, you could be on the hook for a big chunk or for all of that $1.35 million fee, at least for that particular substance. And that was the case with Westlake Chemical Corp, which is the only listed fee payer for 1,1-dichloroethane. And some companies were listed as manufacturers or importers for a number of chemicals. Westlake, again, was actually listed for a total of four. And another company, TCI America, is listed as a manufacturer or importer for 15 of the 20 substances undergoing review. And that's the most of any company on these final lists. Although TCI is considered a small business, so it is subject to a roughly 80% discount on the fees. And for those companies that do need it, EPA has said it is open to payment flexibilities, things like payment plans or extended due dates. But uh, on the other side of that, money could also be an issue for EPA. One substance out of the 20, TCEP, actually has no company listed as a potential payer. So that means EPA will have to make do with $1.35 million less in fees than it was expecting. And by comparison, EPA's entire budget for its chemical risk review and reduction program has been in the low to mid 60 millions for the last couple of years. So how or whether that missing $1.35 million affects these chemical reviews, we'll just have to see how that plays out. Thanks very much, Terry. That's it for today. So thank you again to Terry, Clelia, John and Catherine for sharing their insight into today's stories with us. And thank you to our audience for listening to today's episode. We hope you found it valuable. If you would like to find out more about the topics from today's discussion, please head over to the Chemical Watch website at chemicalwatch.com. We hope you can join us again for next week's news podcast. Until then, goodbye. Unlock the full value of your compliance and product stewardship with world-leading insight and intelligence from Chemical Watch. To find out more or request a demo, visit chemicalwatch.com. Chemical Watch. Intelligence to transform product safety. The Chemical Watch Podcast.